Hey there. Welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host and curator, Chris Desmond. This is a show aimed at challenging the stories that we tell ourselves in order to better navigate the obstacles that prevent us from exploring our curiosity. For you guys that have listened before, you might notice that that was a little bit different to what I usually say at the start. And you also may need to go back and re-listen to it because it's a little bit of a mouthful and a pretty big concept. The reason that it's different is because I've been doing a little bit of work with a coach around the podcast uh, and where I want to take it, where hopefully it'll, it'll go. He's challenged me to go a little bit deeper into what Uncomfortable Is Okay is all about. And so far, that's the most cohesive sentence that I've been able to come up with. Uh, So I'd be I'd be really interested in your guys feedback on that as a concept and and how it makes you feel and how you react to it. But as well as defining the concept more, I'm also thinking about other ways that I can grow the uncomfortable is okay community and concept. So I'd love to hear what you guys would find valuable uh, because that'll really kind of help shape some of the direction that I want to take it. So hit me up on Instagram or Facebook at Uncomfortable is OK, at Chris Desmond NZ on Twitter, or send me an email, uncomfortable is OK at gmail.com with you guys' ideas um, and what you what you'd love to see. Today's chat is with Grant Rawlinson, uh, better known as Axe. And Axe is who you would define as an adventurer, more specifically a human-powered adventurer. He's taken part in multiple human-powered adventures, from getting from the summit of Mount Uruapehu to the summit of Mount Cook in three weeks, climbing Mount Everest twice, among others. His current adventure is called Rowing from Home to Home, where he's rowing and cycling from his home in Singapore to his birthplace of New Zealand, with a significant cycle through Australia on the way. He's already uh, completed the first leg from Singapore to Australia, and then the second leg from Australia, uh, across Australia, and... On the hopefully on the 9th or 10th of October, he's going to start the final leg rowing from Australia to the coast of New Zealand. His stories of adventure are epic, but what's even more epic is the insight he's gleaned from them. I really enjoy his approach to risk mitigation, his concepts about preparation, and how he identifies what he wants to go after. I have been a little bit conflicted about putting out this conversation um, as unfortunately the audio quality isn't great uh, and not being able to to put out the best for you guys does make me feel quite uncomfortable as a person as well. Uh, It makes me feel kind of like I'm, I'm letting you guys down but more importantly letting Grant down as well. But Grant's stories are, are so amazing and his insight is, is so incredible that at, in the end I couldn't not put this out for you guys. Um, I've listened to the conversation multiple times agonizing over it uh, and I reckon that earbuds probably give you the best result uh, in audio when you listen to it. 
but feel free to take a break partway through if it's tough, uh, but make sure to come back to the conversation because it does just get better as it goes through. Uh, I'll also put up the notes that I've taken from this episode uh, on the Uncomfortable is OK Patreon page uh, and make it public so everyone has access to that as well as the audio conversation. Um, So head over to patreon.com slash uncomfortable is OK to check them out um, so that you guys can, if you do miss parts, that you hopefully can catch them up in the notes that I've taken But thank you for getting uncomfortable with Axe and I today. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast for a round two attempt of this. Uh, Sorry about the audio first time round, but hopefully uh, this one works a little bit better for you. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks very much, Chris. And uh, we've had a warm-up run already, so this one should go really smoothly. (laughs) Well, hopefully, hopefully. We don't want to sell people too much on it and and then not deliver, but I'm sure... uh, Given the stories that you told me last time, that'll be it'll be fantastic. Um, so, Grant, for the the people that haven't already had a conversation with you, can you let me know and let the listeners know uh, a little bit about yourself, sort of where you where you were born, where you were from, uh, where you're from, and any kind of major formative experiences that you've uh, that you had growing up. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Taranaki in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, I, I was born in, uh, on a hill country sheep farm, quite a remote part of Paranaki out on the east eastern side. And uh, went to a very small school, country school, with uh, six other kids or seven other kids. And then uh, I left Paranaki when I was about uh, 17 and I went down to Otago University for five years. And then I left New Zealand completely after I finished my university and came to live in Singapore to work. And I've been in Singapore for the last 20 years now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, coming from coming from smallish town, uh, New Zealand, and then, I mean, Otago and Dunedin itself isn't isn't a massive city. Um, when you when you moved to Singapore, what was the kind of the catalyst to go and go and do that? Or how did how did that happen? Well, I was at I was at university, and this this was of course the time before the internet had really um, taken off, and you applied for jobs electronically online. So when I, was, when I was looking for a job in those days, it was still very much there was there was paper advertisements on notice boards in the universities, and then you would have an address on that, and you would email sorry you would mail your CV off, uh, you know the traditional way. So I was a few months before leaving university and I was thinking, what am I going to do? Uh, I wasn't completely um, thunderstruck with the prospects of working in New Zealand. I was looking for some adventure, even though 
almost everybody from uh, my course had a guaranteed job in New Zealand at that time and it was over a degree in survey and surveys were then snapped up with right and center. Uh, and I saw this advertisement for a Japanese company advertising for a position in Singapore for a survey graduate. And I thought, well, I don't know very much about Singapore at all, uh, but it sounds interesting. And I, I nailed off my CD to them. And, you know, in those days, you didn't hear back for, for a few weeks at all. So I actually forgot about it. And I, and I started going for other job interviews, and I've been offered a position in Christchurch. And I was almost ready to accept the position. I was like literally two days there. The contract was in the mail. It was sent to me, coming down to me to sign the contract. And then I got a phone call from uh, Singapore saying that, oh, hi, we're the, uh, this is Topcom Singapore, and we're coming over. We're sending someone over to do interviews in Otago University tomorrow. And I felt terrible at the time. I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot about those guys. And um, I thought, should I tell them that I've accepted another job in Christchurch? I thought, no, I, I can't do it over the phone. He's already on the plane. So I will uh, turn up to the interview anyway and just, just be nice out of, out, of, uh, out of a face and good faith and let them know what the situation is. So I went along to interview the next morning basically with the intent to let them know that uh, I, I couldn't come to Singapore and uh, I, I was going to accept another job at Christchurch. And uh, one of the lessons out of this experience was that you should never uh, make any assumptions or draw conclusions too quickly because uh, the guy who was interviewing me, he listened very passionately to my story, and he said, well, I've flown all the way to New Zealand now, so at the very least, why don't you listen to what I say for the next hour about that position and what life is like in Singapore. And he told me about it, and at the end of that one hour, I'd done a 180-degree turnaround, and I thought, wow, that sounds pretty exciting. So uh, I went home that night and had a massive think about, massive deliberation on what I was going to do. And it really was quite a big, uh, it really was a quite a scary step into the unknown. But I basically decided over the course of that evening that I would uh, not accept the job in Christchurch, and I'd move to Singapore instead. And that was one of the major crossroads in my entire life because it changed, set me out in a different direction, in a completely different direction um, by moving to Singapore than what I would have done if I stayed in New Zealand. Mm, mm. What did he? Um, what did he tell you in that in that hour chat that really uh, convinced you to um, kind of shift your shift your what you were going to do 180 degrees? Well, it, it was. Um, 20 years ago now, so I can't recall the exact specifics. Yeah. But what I do remember at the end of it was just uh, something that aroused um, the curiosity in me. And I was like, wow, that sounds that sounds really exotic. It sounds so different. It sounds exciting. It sounds interesting. It sounds like an adventure. Uh, and those were the kind of feelings that evoked in me rather than the Christchurch position as well. I know Christchurch and I know exactly what it would be like and everyone else in New Zealand is and my course is going to do that same kind of position. So it was just it was just the uniqueness and the difference and the exoticness of it. Yeah. Which I knew Interesting. Yeah. And I curiosity is a, a topic that um, I've talked to a few people about recently and uh, often we you, you always kind of hear find find something you, that you're passionate about and, and go and do it, um, which is all well and good as if you know what you're passionate about uh, before you actually start something. 
but to to kind of get to the level where you are passionate about something I think you you first need to to be curious and you need to kind of go and explore a couple of things to to figure out hey this is something right that I do like that I that I potentially could love or no I've given this a crack and um it's it's not really for me um so I think I'm I'm quite glad that that guy uh managed to to evoke those feelings in in you uh 20 years ago otherwise we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today when, yeah very possibly yeah, when when you were younger um grant had you had you always been quite a, a curious kid yeah definitely um always ask lots of questions and always i can always remember just just being curious about things and uh, why things were like they were and, and uh, just interested in people and food and cultures and outdoors and uh, yeah, experiences. I've always been, always been naturally, naturally curious. Mm. And, I mean, had you, up until, up until that point moving to, to Singapore, had that kind of curiosity ever put you in any other sort of life-defining experiences? Um, oh, good question. You're asking me to uh, rack my brains <laughs> quite, a few, quite a few years ago now, but I mean, some of the things that, uh, uh, that some of the, the things that I didn't will always remember and have very fond memories are um, going on now with Bound Course when I was at university. Uh, I heard one of my friends who'd done it and I was curious, was curious about it. And I thought, oh, that would be interesting, but it was quite a lot of money back in those days when I was at university. so. And, um, it took me about six months to raise the money necessary to go and do it, but it was 21 days, which I really massively enjoyed, and it showed me a different part of the outdoors than what I really was and what I was used to. Because growing up on a sheep farm, of course, just by default, you you spend most of your life in your young outdoors, uh, working and uh, working with your parents and, and doing jobs, etc. So. You know, you're in the outdoors a lot, but I wasn't really exposed to a lot of adventurous outdoor pursuits, except like you know, what you do on a farm, riding motorbikes and uh, wandering around and riding horses. So I've never really tried very much white water kayaking or rock climbing or sailing or things like that. And uh, that was that was something that kind of bound really introduced me to, and uh, that was that was all through curiosity. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure some of those farm experiences uh, seem pretty adventurous to uh, a lot of other people that haven't grown up in that environment. Um, but obviously, Grant, um, I'm not I'm not quite sure what Singapore was like uh, 20, 20 years ago. But moving over there from New Zealand, coming from a, a being a person that really enjoys the outdoors and uh, kind of getting getting out for a bit of an adventure. Was there the opportunity to do that uh, when you went to Singapore? No, initially, no, not at all. Um, but when I first came to Singapore, I, I was still very much uh, into the rugby phase of my uh, of my life, and rugby was really my main passion more than, more than the outdoors at that stage. So I kind of engrossed myself in rugby when I first came to Singapore for the first few years. 
uh, and started playing for the National Singapore Seven Aside team and played in the big tournaments all, all over Asia in the Hong Kong Sevens two times. And um, that all came crashing to a halt when I dislocated my ankle and broke my leg really badly in the Hong Kong Sevens. And uh, that's when I first uh, really made a, a massive shift towards expending my energy and my passion uh, in the outdoors. So I moved away from rugby uh, because of the injury and then moved into the outdoors and, and mountaineering especially. Mm. And was that, um, I, I know what you mean about injuries in rugby. I've had, I've had multiple and um, by the sounds of it, I've had a, a similar one to you as well. I've still got a plate and a few screws sitting in, in one of my, one of my ankles from a, yeah, fracture, yeah, fracture, good. dislocation, and uh, they're not they're not too fun to have. Um, but you bounce you bounce back eventually from them. Um, but that's kind of by the by. Was mountaineering sort of a, a natural progression um, from rugby? Was that something that you'd been into uh, beforehand? Uh, right, um, mountaineering for me was really an extension from uh, from trekking. Uh, and actually, when I first came to Singapore, I, I initially worked here for two years, and I, I did actually move to London for two years, and, uh, and in those days, you had a two-year working holiday visa uh, opportunity for Muslims in Australia, and so uh, I took that opportunity and went with there, and when I was in London, I, uh, I did a couple of long walks across Scotland from uh, the west coast to the east coast of Scotland, I think it took me 18 days or something. Um, completely non-technical, just, uh, just like a long-distance footpath, they call them, in that part of the world, 220 miles or something. And I really enjoyed that, just uh, offering a long by myself. I had uh, one or two friends who joined me for certain parts, and then a lot of them by myself. And I did another one called the West Highland Way, uh, which was only about seven days, but it was uh, a few months later. And then, and then I also went for a walk into Everest Base Camp at the end of that year as well. And... When I came to Singapore, back to Singapore after that, and, and my rugby playing days ended, that's when I uh, that's when I was at a loss for a while actually. And I, I got quite down and depressed because I, I still wanted to play rugby very much inside my head, but uh, I had these number of operations and, and I just wasn't the same. I couldn't run as fast as I used to, and uh, all sorts of issues were were, um, were cropping up. So. That's when I started to get curious about what else can I do, and it wasn't really like mountaineering right at the start. But I, but I thought, well, I enjoyed what have I, what else have I enjoyed in my previous life up to now? And I thought about those long distance walks I'd done, and I thought, well, why don't, um, why don't I, you know, maybe think about doing something like that, and getting into the outdoors a bit more. But also, when I've done the long distance walks. I, I really enjoyed the parts where they got a bit more um, interesting, where, where I had to do some scrambling and some very low-grade kind of bouldering, uh, uh, going across some ridges in Scotland. And that really fired me up, and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, that's when I started to think, what would it be like to actually maybe start climbing, climbing these mountains instead of just walking around their base and, and looking at them? So I set off and uh, did a mountaineering course in New Zealand, and I managed to... I wiggled my way onto a, a mountaineering expedition to the north of Pakistan in the Karakoram. It was one of my first major expeditions, which was a, which was a, a complete failure. And uh, I was with a group of people who had about a similar level of experience as I did, and we were all incredibly naive and uh, probably really shouldn't have been there, to be honest. 
but uh, I, I did. I still love the experience of being up there. You know, it was such such a such an amazing part of the world. And just it was an excuse in a way, you know, to be around, just to travel to some absolutely amazing parts of the world, which I've never never would normally go to. And um, that's when I that's when it really started to pique my interest and I delved more heavily into it. And I spent the next ten years of my life climbing as much as possible and the available leave that I had all around the world. Interesting. And I think that's, again, that's kind of a great example of, of curiosity and where that leads you. Um, I mean, you, uh, you kind of picked that you enjoyed something like, like the trekking and then thought, Hey, let's go explore this a little bit more. And you've, mm. you've, you've uh, kind of built a, a passion from that actually and getting yeah. out and, and spending yeah, all, all your available leave going out and, um, going out mountaineering and, and doing things there. Um, now, you you did an interesting um, kind of mountaineering challenge back in, in New Zealand, I think it was. That, was it a, the top of uh, Mount, or going from the top of Mount Taranaki to uh, a peak in, down south as well, down to Mount Cook, was it? Yeah, it was actually, uh, I called it from peak to peak. And it was just from the summit of Mount Ruapehu to the summit of Mount Cook, a um, journey in between completely 100% by human power and using as little support as possible, so no support vehicles or vessels or anything. So um, that, that uh, was just me and a mate. And it took us, I think, 21 days and 19 hours. And we, we, had, a, we had a fantastic adventure on a budget of $2,000. Starting on the summit of, of Ruapehu and then coming down to Tamaranui on our bicycles and kayaking five days down the Wanganui River to, to Wanganui Town. And then uh, cycling down to Makara Beach just outside Wellington and kayaking across to Picton, um, 70 kilometres in 10 hours into Picton. And then uh, back on the bikes, cycling all the way down to Mount Cook Village and then climbing, yeah, climbing to the summit of Mount Cook. So to do it in one continuous journey. That expedition was uh, was pretty pretty damn lucky, I would say, because anyone who's ever tried to climb across the Cook Strait or climb Mount Cook, just do one of those things, uh, realizes how much time you need to have to sit there and wait in position for the right weather window. And uh, on this journey, we had very little time. We only had three weeks to squeeze in the whole trip, so uh, the most we had to wait anywhere along the trip was one day. And we literally turned up to Makara Beach on our bikes, and the next day was just absolutely perfect midday to, to drive across Cook Street. So, and uh, the same with Mount Cook as well. The conditions just happened to all work in our favour. So, it was a really a fantastic, um, a fantastic adventure, which combined mountaineering with another couple of curiosities in my life, which were um, sea kayaking and, uh, and long distance cycle touring, which I really enjoyed as well. Yeah, interesting. Um- Purely out of interest, what time of year was it that you were doing it? That you, that you hit these great weather conditions in in the middle of New Zealand. Um, I remember finishing just before Christmas Day, so I guess uh, I guess like maybe around the first of December or something. Yeah, um, it's not too bad coming through Wellington then. Yeah, well, it rained it rained a lot uh, as we rode from Wellington uh, for two days to get down to Macquarie Beach. I remember. Raining torrentially, um, but when we got to Cook Strait, it was just a, a pillar of the day. Yeah. And I actually wrote a, I wrote a book about that small expedition from peak to peak, which is a, a 
available on Amazon as a download for uh, only about three dollars or something. So uh, cool. I really enjoy, I enjoyed it so much that uh, yeah, that uh, I, I was motivated enough to, to write a story about. Excellent. I'll pop a link for that in the in the notes for the show as well, so people can can check that out. Thank what you. was the what was the motivation for doing that? Well, like, why did you decide? Hey, I think this is a this is a great idea to to go and do, and I, I think I can pull it off in three weeks. Great question. The motivation really stemmed from the fact that um, the two previous years I've been on two Everest expeditions. I've been to the, to try and climb the North Ridge of Everest in two thousand and eleven, and uh, had a massive failure there. I got my altitude pulmonary edema and I came very close to uh, not ever coming back from that expedition just because I, uh, I got so sick on the mountain. Uh, and I returned the following year and uh, this time was uh, much more successful and managed to stand on the summit of Everest. And it was when I came back from those, that, that second expedition to Everest that uh, I was like, wow, what do I do now? What's next? And I spent so much money in the previous two years you know, going to Everest no matter what way you do it, uh, is expensive. And I've spent almost $100,000 in two years, and I was like, well, I, I still want a massive adventure, but I don't want to have to spend, uh, you know, two months away from my wife. I don't want to spend um, thousands and thousands of dollars, and I have three weeks of leave to use up home. And uh, I've been doing, when I came back from Everest, I started to do, a few more adventurous things together with my wife, and we bought an inflatable bike and started kayaking around Singapore. Uh, and I started to find that really enjoyable as well and, and really challenging when you do sea kayaking and areas with high current streams. And you have to do a lot of planning and uh, and um, and really you know work out how what tidal cycles and the right direction to go at the right time. And I I, I always love the planning around uh, expeditions sometimes even more than the actual expedition itself. So I love kayaking and, and we also did some bicycle touring and I loved that and I thought, how could I, how could I make a trip which combined uh, my love for mountaineering with uh, these new passions of cycle touring and, uh, and kayaking? And that's when I, I went to New Zealand and decided uh, to come up with this big, big trip. And I had no idea, knew, knew I had a massive, um, massive amount of uncertainty and uh, quite a bit of risk, but uh, but I still, uh, as with all my expeditions, when it comes to risk, I still feel that it could be managed. It could be managed to an acceptable level. Yeah, and I, um, I, I want to have a bit of a chat with you about uncertainty and risk, but I think that probably ties in quite well to the adventure that uh, that you're undertaking currently. Um, but I want to just jump back, actually. You mentioned Everest there before, and, and two shots of, of Everest, and I've I've kind of already heard uh, these these stories, and obviously people people like the um, they like the the success stories. The hey, I'm standing on on top of Everest, but for you, I I think the 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 story that is more interesting is is the story of your first attempt at Everest. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if we could have a little bit of a chat about that. So, I mean, what's, you mentioned that you'd been to Everest Base Camp before, um, and, and I've been up that way, and it's just such a beautiful area of the world. So I think I can understand your, your motivations for, for wanting to, to go back there. But 
why did you why did you decide hey i want to i want to have a crack at everest what was what really drew that to that to you were you to that well uh i'm an absolute um, everest nut in terms of the history of uh, of the early expeditions on climbing everest and and um and sort and hillary was definitely um a person in life who I, I admire extremely uh, for what he's done and how he's spent his life and also, of course, his, his, his success on Everest. And so for a number of years, before I even thought about climbing Everest myself, I just loved the subject and I loved the literature and I loved, I just devoured everything that I could on Mount Everest. And going to the base camp on the south side from Nepal was just an incredible experience, just reliving the history as I went in there and thinking about all those people that have gone in there and then seeing the scale of the mountains itself when you actually get there is just absolutely mind-blowing. So it wasn't uh, until I've been climbing for seven or eight years really that I started to think, well, maybe, 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 you know, maybe I could have a crack at Mount Everest. Uh, and that's, that's what that's when I first started thinking about it. It took me a couple of years to sum up enough coverage to even talk to other people about it. And then, uh, and then I, when I um, went on my first expedition, I actually went to the north side of Everest. I went around into Tibet. I didn't go by the traditional route, which is uh, through Nepal, uh, which is around about 80% of climbers go from the Nepalese side traditionally. Uh, and there's slightly easier access um, from the Nepalese side. There, is, uh, there are some helicopters kind of operations so you can fly in and out of base camp and, um, you know, it's a completely different route from the south side. The, the biggest danger on the south side is the Kumbu Icefall, which is between base camp and camp one. Uh, and the summit day on the south side is, is a more straightforward day. And then on the north side, whereas the north side in Tibet, which is part of China, is a massively different experience. It's much more remote from getting to. There is no helicopter uh, services at all. The Chinese don't allow any of that. There is a lot of military presence there uh, with armed soldiers um, stationed all, all around the place. It's much, much windier. Um, the route is much safer down lower on the mountain, but it's much more dangerous on the summit day when you have to uh, do a one-mile traverse along the north ridge to get to the summit. So a completely different route. Uh, and... In a way, I, I would have loved would have loved to have done the traditional route on Everest from the south side and the Hillary step, but just had far too many people uh, on that side for, for my liking. So that's why I switched to the north side. And you know, I I uh, really did my utmost in, in uh, when I went along to that first Everest expedition and being prepared. Um, I've done you know technically I was I I've done a massive amount of preparation for it. I went to New Zealand just a few months before and climbed the west ridge of Malta Brun, which is a sixth highest mountain in New Zealand, but a really beautiful, steep, uh, big ridge traverse with massive exposure. And so I, I was really confident. I was very confident that I was prepared for Everest. But I always tell people that Mount Everest is not a fair mountain. It's not a fair, it's not a fair place. And when you get there, it's a bit like life in a way, you know. It's, um, the people who prepare at the hardest and who are the fittest and um, the strongest and have done everything doesn't necessarily mean they'll get to the top. You need a lot of things to get to the summit of Everest, including luck. And uh, I got 
really bad altitude sickness uh, when I was only advanced base camp, 6,000, 6,200 meters. Woke up in the middle of the night. Uh, and, well, the slightly longer version of the story is that the last that week, the first two weeks of the expedition, I was going so slowly, I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I couldn't even keep up with the rest of the team members. So from advanced base camp, they all left me and went up to a camp at 7,000 meters to the North Pole for the evening, and I stayed in advanced base camp by myself, uh, just with no energy whatsoever. I woke up, well, I didn't really wake up because I, I couldn't sleep. It's really impossible to sleep when you're feeling like that. So I was lying in my tent, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, I had to get up and go to the toilet about minus 20 degrees and um, as I came back up from the toilet I didn't have enough energy to get back to my, my tent even and I was gasping for breath and then I crawled back up to the tent and I started coughing up, coughing and coughing into the snow and I looked at my, turned my head torch on, looked into the snow and I was coughing and spitting up all this blood and that's when, uh, that's when I finally realised what Put two and two together. If, if I was in the situation now, I'd realise it much earlier. What had been happening to me in those days leading up to it, but, uh, but I was um, I was not acclimatising well, and I'd got high altitude pulmonary edema, and your lungs start to fill up with fluid, and you start basically choking to death on, um, on the plasma, which splits in the blood. It's pumped into your lungs at such high pressure, and the blood splits, and your lungs start to fill up with plasma. So yeah, um, the only way, the only thing to do, if I'd been on the south side of Everest, I would have called a helicopter evacuation straight away. But uh, on the north side, there isn't any helicopters, so uh, I waited till the sun came up and I started staggering off uh, for uh, 11 hours back down to base camp. And fortunately, our team leader, another Kiwi guy, Jamie McGuinness, um, managed to send a Sherpa with a bottle of oxygen to catch up with me. And um, he walked with me for 11 hours that day, and I couldn't even uh, carry the bottle of oxygen, which is only four kilograms, so it's too weak. And I keep falling over every 150 meters, and just want to go to sleep. And he just strapped the oxygen mask on me, and uh, I breathe for about four or five minutes, get a little bit more strength, and keep on stumbling. So, yeah, I managed to get down to base camp, and then the next day I hitchhiked. On the north side, another issue is that you can't get low if you get sick. Uh, Tibet, just this massively high elevated country. So uh, the next day I hitchhiked down to this disgusting little Tibetan village at 4,000 meters and spent three days in this in this hovel where I got food poisoning and um, chased by dogs and uh, and uh, my tooth abscessed and um, and everything and I got worse and worse and I finally managed to catch a uh, a motorbike ride back up to um base camp about three or four days later in, in an even worse state than when I'd come down from uh, with high altitude, high altitude pulmonary edema. And I uh, rested in base camp for a week or so, and then I tried to make a summit push uh, like a couple of weeks later with the rest of the team. And I even managed to drag my carcass up to about 8,300 metres. And, and I left at 11 o'clock at night on the summit push and I only got 50 metres outside the camp. And uh, the wind was far too strong. My fingers were freezing. My toes were freezing. And I just knew also I didn't have enough energy to, to be able to get to the summit and back down again. So I made uh, a relatively easy decision really at that time to turn around and, and come back down. So it was a it was a pretty um, it was a pretty it was a real adventure I'd say that first that first expedition and. Uh, there was a lot more that happened, but I'm just trying to summarise it in a nutshell. There. Yeah. But, uh, but basically, when I came back, I felt um, pretty crap for a while. 
until I went back the next year. But now when I look back at on the whole Everest experience as a whole, it is so much richer by having that failure in the first year. And uh, I, I would not change it in the world. I think it makes me a better person and what an uh, empathetic person with people who uh, go through these kind of processes. And, and I just, you know, you're, when you have to work really hard for something, you appreciate it so much more if you're ever unsuccessful. Mm, definitely. Um, and with that, I mean, you, you obviously felt felt crap because you, health-wise you, you weren't great, but um, emotionally it must have been pretty uh, pretty tough as well. Were you, when you came back, were you quite accepting of that? I don't, I don't want to call it a failure, but um, not making the summit the first time round and kind of after how much effort you'd put in? Yeah, well, it really kicked my confidence. Um, to be honest, and my confidence of my body's ability to acclimatise and, and came back, people would say to me, well, you gave it your best shot, but you know, you're just, you're just not suited to altitude mountaineering. And um, I kind of, that, that kind of riled me up a little bit when people would say that, but I think, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I just can't, you know, some people just physiologically cannot acclimatise. And uh, I, I tried to um, forget about the worst for like, couple of months after I came back I was just like well that was it that was my time that was my opportunity and um, it didn't work but I gave it my best shot so I should be happy with that but uh, you know every I'd go to I'd get up in the morning and um, brush my teeth and look at myself in the mirror and it would just be it would be there I'd see it in my eyes I'd be thinking about Everest and I'd be at work and I'd be sitting in a meeting and uh, my mind would be wandering off to think about Mount Everest and I just couldn't get it out of my mind, you know, um, as much as I tried to ignore it. And, and that's when I, I didn't really, it wasn't like an instantaneous decision to think I'm going to go back, but what I did start to think was what would I change if I did go back and give it a second shot? And I started making a list of the things that I'd change, and it was during this process that I started to get really excited. I was like, wow, you know what, actually, if I did go, if, Hypothetically, if I did go back next year, I'm actually in a fantastic position. I know every single piece of gear which I need to change and upgrade. I know uh, every system which didn't work and what I need to fix. I know what I need to do with my acclimatization strategy to be in a stronger position. And I was like, wow, I'm in a, and that was like going through an Everest 101 course <laughs> that first year. And that's when I really started to get excited about it. That's what I like to tell people as well. If you have a if you have a massive failure in life and you do get a chance to go back for a second attempt, it really does put you in a fantastic position to, to change all those things that didn't work and you go back with the benefit of experience and hindsight, which is uh, something money cannot buy. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think with with that as well as often when we do have a have a failure, we're quite guilty of um, after we've kind of got off over the initial disappointment of it, of, of not reflecting back on that failure and doing what you did in terms of um, saying, hey, this is, I need to have a think about what I would do differently. And if I do go and do it again, here's the, here's the stuff that I need to do. I need to organize this equipment. I need to uh, do this slightly different kind of training. I need to change my diet slightly. I need to 
uh, rejig my acclimatization strategy with it. And I think with with that, going through that process as well helps us, um, I mean, our confidence is usually still a little bit knocked after that, but it helps us build that confidence and build back to a point where we are ready to um, have another crack at things and have another go. Because, I mean, you could have quite easily just sat there and listened to what everyone said is, hey, mm. you're, not, you're not built for that altitude. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right. Were there any other things that, that helped you uh, – get your confidence back, Grant, um, for that, that second attempt? Um, I, no, well, I think having 100% genuine passion um, about, about the whole process um, was probably the most important thing as well. Uh, you know, I just didn't, if I just wanted to get a, um, a picture on my summit, for a few seconds, and that was all I cared about, which some people on Everest expeditions, that's all they want. Um, but if I had just been like that, I don't think I would have had enough motivation to take the risk and go back again, because once you have high altitude on your demo once, uh, then it's generally accepted that it will come back uh, again, and if it does come back again, um, it will be more severe than the first time you have it. So I was extremely nervous uh, of going back and going to those biologies again. Um, but I was so genuinely passionate just about the process and then my Everest and wanting to have a successful expedition of that. Uh, that really gave me the motivation to go back. And obviously, second time round, you, you made it with, with putting those changes in place. Were there any other than the reaching the, the top, were there any kind of uh, highlights of that second trip that you went on or everything just kind of went swimmingly with the, those changes yeah. that you'd made? Well, one of the big changes I made was my acclimatization strategy. And so I decided to go to Nepal two weeks earlier and just go for a walk by myself. I did a, uh, a trek with the Annapurna Circuit, which is uh, one of the more popular long-distance walks in, in Nepal through the beautiful Annapurna region and you go up uh, well over 5,000 metres over a pass of the Turong Mark. So I just went for a wander by myself over around there for 10 days, 9 or 10 days, and uh, allowed my body, gave my body like a kickstart to uh, start acclimatising before I even joined the expedition. And, you know, that experience in itself, spending 10 days wandering around the Annapurnas when I was by myself, you stay in tea houses every night and when you're by yourself and on walks like that you you really uh, get to speak to lots and lots of people it seems to be easier easier to talk to people easier to talk to people uh when you're by yourself than, than you when you're in a group so uh but just that experience alone was 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 you know was an amazing experience i mean well worth just going to Nepal itself just to go for a walk like that and then uh, on the expedition, I mean, I have such fond memories of, of, of both my Everest expeditions and the way you know. Um, they're just they're massive journeys in themselves. You, you, you share it with other people. Uh, you do this amazing driving through uh, Tibet for uh, six or seven days and across the Tibetan Plateau and um, being at base camp and looking up at the summit of Mount Everest is something that I'll never forget, especially when the jet stream winds are... Uh, are about 300 kilometers per hour 
uh, up on the summit, and it just sounds like a 747 is taking off. So there is just memory after memory after memory uh, from that second Everest expedition. And then being on the summit, I was up there for about 10 minutes, and uh, my first oxygen bottle ran out right on the summit, which was perfect timing. But uh, I had to take it off and, um, and reattach to my second oxygen bottle. So I, I breathed the ambient air for about two or three minutes. And just through that, I lost my memory uh, for about the next 20 minutes. So even though I was up there for about 10 minutes, I can't even remember the last five minutes I was up there. And uh, I don't even remember leaving. <laughs> just remember the first memory I, memory I can come to is, uh, is descending some fixed ropes about 150 metres down from the summit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a scary thought, actually. Um, like when you when you got to the top, um, what was it like looking out from the summit of Everest, looking down over everything else, or or across to some of the other um, peaks that are almost uh, as equally as high? Yeah, I mean, uh, people normally laugh when I say this, but uh, if you like nice views, then um, you'll definitely like standing on the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, it is just an incredible view, you know. And it's so varied. If you look to the north, if you stand on the summit of Everest, basically you can have uh, you have one foot in, in Nepal and you have one foot in China. So you're literally straddling the border of two countries when you stand on the summit. And if you look north into Tibet and China, then it's all brown, arid, flat, um, you know, Tibetan plateau. And then you just turn your head around and look the other way and into, into Nepal, and it's all the Himalayan mountain range. It's all this range of 8,000 metres of the world's most massive, snowy, steep, icy, glaciated um, mountains, you know. So it's just an incredible, incredible uh, view, and you can – Look down from the summit and see every single camp, every one of your six camps on the way up, and uh, see these massive, you know, the Rongbok Glacier, which goes for miles. You can see where it starts and goes down, you know, 40, 30 kilometers or so. It really is truly a uh, incredible view. Unfortunately, you don't have a massive amount of time to sit there and look at it. But I took a really nice video from the summit with the view. If anyone's interested, they can see it on YouTube. I will. Uh, I'll look that up. Actually, I, ha- I haven't watched that one yet. So, Grant, I, th- I think that's you've been on some great mountaineering adventures, um, and and also the, the peak to peak challenge as well is is incredible. You've got another adventure that's going on at the moment called uh, rowing from home to home. Mm. We, how? Do you want to tell us about that, like what it what it is, and you, how you came up with the idea for it? Yeah. So after my um, my uh, peak to peak challenge in New Zealand, which was the human powered traverse from Rupaia to the summit of Mount Cook, I was uh, in the plane flying back to Singapore. You know, when you sit in a plane, you look at the moving map and you can see your position where you are as you're flying. And I started to think about Singapore and New Zealand and about whether it would be possible to connect my current home in Singapore to my original home in, in Taranaki in New Zealand in a completely 100% human-powered journey. So not using any engines, and not using any sails whatsoever. So I kind of went back and I started planning that quietly, very, very quietly, without telling anybody. Um, the following year, 
I made another peer-to-peer trip actually in Europe. I started on the summit of Ben Nevis in uh, Scotland and cycled all the way down from Scotland to the south coast of England, kayaked over the English Channel, cycled to Mount Blanc and finished on the summit of Mount Blanc in France. And it was during that that uh, that second peak-to-peak trip in Europe and I, I really cemented the idea that I think I'm going to get this this um, journey from Singapore to New Zealand a uh, crack. So it's 12,000 kilometres, and um, initially I wanted to use an ocean rowing boat. I thought about lots of different ways of doing it, like using a kayak, and uh, going down from Indonesia to Australia, but uh, it was going to be really slow. It was going to take like a year or something just for the, the first stage to get to Australia. I needed to go much faster than that, and so I settled on using an ocean rowing boat and I really initially wanted to try and row all the way to New Zealand. When I got to Australia, row right around Australia and then row across the Tasman Sea. But the more I started studying currents and wind patterns, you know, it started to look like trying to get around the top of Australia and down, down the east coast of Australia would be very, very difficult because of the wind, the prevailing wind directions. So I changed the plan slightly to include a cycling leg, row to Australia, and then cycle the way across Australia to the East Coast, and then, then row across the Tasman to New Zealand. That's the, basically the background of the trip. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, so you're about, well, you're not too far away from uh, setting off for the, the final push for the trip, from uh, the row from Australia to New Zealand. Um, Hopefully the cranes show up to put your boat on the transport your boat um, today. How has the how's the first the, the first couple of legs been? Yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm exactly two thirds of the way through the journey now. Uh, so I set up on the third of January this year in an ocean rowing boat. Uh, my ocean rowing boat, uh, which cost one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and was a massive amount of work to. To, uh, to get that up to speed and out here to Singapore. And um, I chose a partner to row with me for the first leg of the journey from here to Darwin in Australia. It's a distance of about 4,200 kilometres. And I chose a partner for two main reasons. One was because I had a limited window to reach Australia. Uh, I had to, to do it in a time. We have monsoon patterns in this part of the world where the wind blows one way for a few months and then it reverses direction for the other months. And I needed to get it finished uh, within three months of departing from Singapore. I needed to get to Darwin in Australia uh, before the wind turned around. The other reason was because it's like an international superhighway for vessels in this part of the world. So, uh, for example, one time on our row, we were in the middle of the Java Sea, 100 miles from shore. I stood up around midnight when I was rowing and I counted 28 ships surrounding us. Um, so literally having somebody on watch uh, 100% of the time was, uh, was a big part of the risk management strategy and I wasn't prepared to, to go out there and then go to sleep for a few hours in the boat and, um, and, and play Russian roulette with all, all these ships passing by. So I chose a partner for the first leg. There was an English chap called Charlie. And uh, we uh, set off on the 3rd of January, and it took us 78 days to row from Singapore all the way to Darwin in Australia through Indonesia and East Timor. Now, no one's ever done this by human power from Singapore to Australia before, not that I could find anyway. So I didn't have a manual or anything to follow or any advice from anybody, so uh, it was a big step into the unknown. And uh, Indonesia especially 
has got very little information about currents, but it has very, very strong currents, you know, five, six, seven, eight knots of current uh, between the islands, very dangerous currents. And um, it was, uh, it, was a, it really was a massive challenge to get the first day John and Dunwood across to Darwin uh, safely in the boat. So when we got to Darwin after 78 days, Charlie left the expedition. Then I uh, continued on my bicycle and I, I rode for 45 days and um, almost 4,000 kilometres all the way across Australia through the Northern Territory, through the deserts and the outback, just solo by myself, um, carrying my water in my tent and stuff. Uh, and um, my big challenge through there was really headwinds. Uh, the, the time of the year I was doing it, I was riding straight into the wind and I had 20 days non-stop headwinds. And my worst day, I rode at an average of seven kilometers per hour for 10 hours um, to make 70 kilometers distance for the day. Uh, so it was, it was really mentally a massive struggle to get through those really remote outback areas. Big long stretches between water stops, 260, 270 kilometers between one little town to another little town and nothing at all in between in terms of water or supplies or anything. But I made it to Coffs Harbour um, after 45 days, which is on the east coast of Australia. And then, yeah, and uh, now I've been waiting. It was the middle of winter when I arrived there. So I had to wait for the right timing uh, to try and finish off the journey by rowing across the Tasman uh, to New Zealand, mm. which, I'm, which I'm due to start in three weeks' time. Yeah, what, what date do you uh, set off there, Grant? Well, I can't really give a date because it depends on the weather. Uh, but I'm arriving in um, office around the 9th of October, and I'm hoping to depart sometime within the next two weeks after that date, uh, all depending on the weather. Mm. Excellent. That is, I mean, that's a phenomenal trip that you've uh, that you've been on so far, and it's going to be phenomenal rowing across the across the, the Tasman as well. How do you how do you prepare for something like that? Not just the, the physical, but but everything else as well. Yeah. So preparation uh, is absolutely phenomenally massive for this expedition. It's taken years of preparation, and um, all I can all I can do is thank my genes or whatever it is that uh, I love doing preparation. Because if you didn't love preparation, you, you probably wouldn't do something like this. Most people think the preparation for something like this is just doing some physical training, you know, go, go to the gym and uh, jump on the growing machine, but that's about 10% of the whole expedition. Uh, so I've, been, I've got a massive uh, exercise around risk management and uh, ensuring that the boat is the best boat that I can find in the world, the fastest boat, the safest boat, you know, and just spending hours and hours and hours uh, on the boat training Doing courses, I've done uh, 14 days of uh, taught theoretical courses on seamanship and navigational theory and sea survival and first aid at sea. And I'm doing training rows, with about you know 500 kilometres of training rows before we even departed. And you know, if, any, if anyone's ever owned a boat, you know that it's just continual work. Even a, a boat, uh, a rowing boat with no engine or no sails. So I've just spent the last two weeks. Eight hours a day working on the boat, uh, just changing things, modifying things, cleaning things, upgrading things, um, just to get it in a position ready to be shipped out today. 
So the risk management side, uh, the preparations, the, the planning, uh, and coming up with all the protocols about how to react in every single situation. I mean, that's 80% of the success in, in the ocean marine business is, is before you even push off from shore because it's an extremely committing thing to do, go out in an ocean marine boat a long way offshore and uh, there's no there's no button that you can easily push once you get out there and think, well, I don't know how to do this. Or, I don't know how to handle this situation. Well, this thing's broken. I need a new one. Um, you've got to have redundancy and backup for every single system on board and you have to know how to fix every single system on board, all the electronics and the water maker and, and, uh, and you know, just, just be really confident, extremely confident of looking after yourself out there. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I think with, with that, I've talked to a lot of people that have taken on uh, big long distance challenges and none of them have been quite to the to the magnitude that that you have but that they've all kind of reiterated that it's the i mean the physical preparation is is obviously there it's it's important but it's such a small part that it plays with that that it's that it's everything else around it that you you can convince your body to go and do uh do the stuff if you've done all the other preparation with it yeah um and actually, I mean, you, you comment about boats earlier as well. My, my uncle's a yachty, uh, and he, uh, <laughs> he told me once about boats. He was like, a boat is a hole in the ocean that you pour time and money into. And I was like, man, that sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. Um, so true. <laughs> one, one thing that I wanted to touch on with you, um, Grant, it's, I mean, this is a, it's an inherently risky um, adventure, as most adventures are, but I mean, there, are, there are some big risks with it. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a strategy that you use for approaching risk management or a way that you, that you think about it? Mm. Um, well, interesting you say that. You asked the question and asked me to try and formalise an answer around it. Um, so I'm kind of uh, I'm thinking thinking on my feet as I answer this. But <clears throat> I do have a very good friend and um, a partner I did the first peak to peak expeditions with, the first two with, and initially he was going to be my partner on this expedition as well. But we very much differed in our approach to risk management. And, uh, he had very much the the turn up and let's see what happens kind of approach. And uh, whereas I am completely the opposite, I like to plan and prepare in as much detail as possible. And I love that military slogan, um, train hard, fight easy. And uh, I really like to spend just, I'm, I'm pedantic, I'm fanatical almost about the preparation. My wife is one of the few people, few people that actually sees what I go to in terms of planning and preparation. So... If, if there's any strategy, is it that I just spend a massive amount of time doing the preparation and, um, and the planning and uh, also trying to train in, a, in a, as realistic scenario as possible. Uh, there's no point spending all your time in an air-conditioned gym training to do something, uh, which is uh, when you get out there, the environment is not an air-conditioned gym. You know, you, you've got to be out there and, 
um, if it's in an ocean where I'm boat trying to get there as much as possible, that's when you that's when you start coming up with issues and problems and it all becomes real and that's when you that's when you really get that that's such an important experience. I'm not sure if that answered your question or not. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think it does. It's just uh, lots and lots of time on on the preparation and going through kind of um, all the, the potential scenarios that are going to, to happen and coming up with a, a plan around that and um, having having that set in your mind so that you know what you're going to do ahead of time if, if something happens. There's a, there's a saying, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it's um, something along the lines of, um, we don't, we don't uh, perform to the level of our aspirations. We perform to the level of our training. So if you've if oh, you're prepared and, yeah. Yeah, and trained, then mm. that's that's what you'll do. You, I mean, you can't just kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah. No, she'll she'll be right, yeah. which is a typical Kiwi saying um, for, right. for all of these things. Um, but it is, yeah. It's it's that that prep work that's the that's really important stuff for a for a, an expedition like this. Because with yeah. the with the uh, the Tasman row, um, obviously that's that that's pretty tough as well. What are the things that you're that you're worried about, or kind of the biggest challenges you foresee for that row? Um, the weather. Definitely with the Tasman, and that's something that scares me the most about the Tasman is that uh, I'm taking 70 days worth of food. Um, the six boats which have successfully crossed the Tasman before by human power have all taken somewhere between, um, you know, 60 days to 90 days. The fastest crossing was uh, just over 30 days by a four-man crew, but um, there's been so few boats really um, that have crossed it. And six that I know of successfully. Um, that uh, that the average seems to be about sixty days. So that's so slow that you can't outrun weather, and you're definitely going to get hammered um, by some really bad stuff during that time. You know, the boat is extremely seaworthy, and it's self-righting, and it's um, it's like a cork in the ocean. Um, so you know the chance of it sinking, even in really rough weather. So extremely remote, but still being rolled over and capsized multiple times, and um, or even being separated from the boat. Um, some some of the things which I'm really concerned about, and really uh, working hard on my risk management approach and my strategy um, to to be able to handle and be able to deal with the situation when it arises. And one of the big things about about risk, I think, is also mentally preparing yourself. That a situation's going to happen and knowing what to do when it does arise and not just think that um, it's not going to happen and get out there and freak out when the situation occurs. So I try and do a lot of mental visualization that, uh, you know, I get a text message from my, I'm a meteorologist who sends me a tip in the weather at 8 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock at night. So I get a message from him forecasting 50 knot winds in uh, three or four hours. What am I going to do? You know, secure the deck area, have the parachute anchor deployed, and you know, get enough water ready for the period of the storm as it blows through. Um, make sure I've eaten properly, everything's lashed down. I'm, I'm secured myself and my strapping system into the cabin. 
uh, all the electronics, the critical electronics, the radar reflector, everything is turned on and working. Um, sat phones charged, you know, all those things um, to, to, to mentally prepare myself before I get out there. Mm. So you're working, you're working through that process at, at the moment and I'm assuming you've been working through it for, well, since actually before you left Singapore on the, on the, the first row. Yeah, well, the first stage, the first stage, um, the, the sea state, the sea conditions uh, are really um, much more tranquil all the way to, to Australia, even uh, from here, because it's a lot of shelter on islands, etc. The Tasman Sea is an extension of the Southern Ocean, and it's an entirely different, different beast altogether. And uh, it's really a, a difficult stretch of water to try and get over, even for yachts, you know. Because it's it's got very fickle wind, you don't really have a, a prevailing wind direction, unfortunately, in, in the central Tasman. Um, because you have this series of high pressure systems which come through and they're, they're spinning anti-clockwise, and as they pass through you, the wind changes direction all the way through. So you don't get a massive prevailing wind system to help push you along, and that has um, horrible currents, uh, big eddies of currents, and. Then you have, of course, the storms and, and, and the massive swells and, and waves. I mean, this week the, the swells have been eight meters, which is uh, which is pretty big. Mm, that's that's massive. Um, Grant, why why human powered? Why does that appeal to you? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I can remember when I was about. One of my first memories when I was sitting on the back of the motorbike with my father and we were moving some sheep on the farm. And uh, just thinking, this is boring sitting on the motorbike. I'd much rather walk up the hill. And uh, I kept jumping off and, and running up the hill and, uh, and enjoying it. And my father would be angry with me and saying, get back on the motorbike. There's no need to run. I've got a motorbike. And I was like, well, I don't really like riding the motorbike that much. I'd rather walk. And there's just something about Traveling by human power for me, uh, that, that I really enjoy. You know, it, it makes me even even the thought of getting on my bike and going for a long ride. Just now, as I'm talking to you, actually makes me smile. And I find that um, I'm a person I can't appreciate something very much if I haven't worked really hard to get the harder I work for it, the more I appreciate it. And I find um, going on these long human power journeys just so rewarding and just. You know, when you're on your bike, especially, something tour is such a fantastic way to tour around the country. You can eat whatever you want. You can drink whatever you want. You can rest whenever you want. You can cycle for as long as you want. Sleep whenever you want. And it's just a real sense of freedom. And um, and you get to experience, you get to experience the outdoors and the environment in a much more intimate way than, than you would if you're in a machine. So when you're traveling by human power in a boat, you understand where every single current is. You understand what the wind's doing at all times because it affects the way that you're moving so much. If you've just got a 150-horsepower outboard engine on the back of your boat and all you have to do is change the stop a little bit to, you know, to battle against the tide, you don't even know a lot of the time what's happening. So I find it a much more intimate and enjoyable way of traveling and, and uh, much more rewarding. And the engines. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, I, I completely understand those those comments that you made there. That uh, like, 
when you when you do something and you and you achieve it yourself, it is it is so fulfilling as well. And taking taking that time, um, you do you get much more of an intimate look at uh, at your surroundings and, and a much greater understanding of them as well. So I can see why you I can see why it, why it appeals to you. Um, now you probably need to get back to uh, back down to, to get your boat shipped off reasonably soon. Um, I got a couple more questions that I like to ask everyone towards the end of the chat before we let you go. Um, the right. first one, the first one, Grant is: Can you tell me about the last uncomfortable thing that you did uh, and how you got through it? The last uncomfortable thing that I did, I think off the top of my head right now, a really uncomfortable thing was, um, was probably was probably on my bike ride across Australia uh, when I when I was cycling into the headwinds, I believe. Um, I said it a bit earlier on, I told the story about that, about 20 days of headwinds and I was like, and to work hard to cycle downhill as well as uphill with the winds were so strong. So, uh, I mean, basically, basically, uh, I didn't have much choice in that situation about stopping. So um, I just sucked it up. And, and uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've got out of this whole expedition to date, and I learned it from being out in the boat, was that no storms ever last. Uh, and I keep that's one of the mottos that I have for this expedition now, and I haven't pasted on the top of the boat. Just to remind myself that when when uh, things are going pretty rough and they're not very nice, you always have to remind yourself that that's never it's not going to last. And at some stage, things will turn and I'll get better. And the key is just having enough power and mental and physical resolve to get through that. So. On the bike, I just uh, shortened my focus, which is a great mental strength technique for getting through tough times. Shortened my focus and just thought about the next 10 k's, the next five k's, or the next half a day, and and I just just kept battling on day after day until after 20 days of cycling through headwinds, I got through them. Cool. What is the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do, and why is that uncomfortable for you? By far the most uncomfortable thing I've got coming up is saying goodbye to my wife and my two little girls um, in three weeks' time when I have to walk out the door and uh, get on a plane and fly to Australia and, and attempt to row across the Tasman. Um, why is that uncomfortable? Because I love them very much. They're the most important things in my life. And... and um, I know what I have to go through before I see them again. And, um, you know, as much as I, I prepare and everything, I also know realistically that what I'm doing is risky. So that's an extremely uncomfortable sensation uh, to even think of now before, before, I've even, before it even arrives. And I mean, we, we haven't talked much about your um, your wife and, and your two girls, but they are obviously uh, very supportive as well of all the all the adventuring that that you do, and, and trust you as well. So, 
to a to a great extent to to get through that and to and to come back safe and sound to them. That's that's you, you just um, you just summed it up right then. The, the reason that my wife uh, supports me to to have this adventurous lifestyle is very simply down to the fact that she trusts me. She sees she's the one that sees more than anyone else how much effort and work I put into the preparation. And she always tells me those three words uh, whenever, I, whenever I leave on an expedition is that I trust you. I trust you will make the right decisions at the right times when you're out there so that you'll always come home safely. So I think it's the definitely the biggest motivational factor between one human being to another one is, uh, is giving trust like that. It gives me so much motivation to work even harder and make sure I've managed the risks much more than some of my other friends' wives that sometimes who uh, will be screaming and set phone to their uh, partners to get home right now or else. You know. <laughs> so uh, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky in a way. And I, I, now, now I have that massive responsibility of having to repay that trust. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Um, Grant, I mean, we've, we've touched on this a, a, a bit already, but do you have any other strategies that you use for approaching uncomfortable situations? Well, one thing um, that, I, that I've found has helped me take on really big goals is thinking, thinking massively. And sometimes if you think too small about something, you can start thinking about all the little issues. But uh, I remember when I was thinking about the peak to peak journey, uh, the initial one in New Zealand, and I was thinking, oh, I'm climbing the Cook Strait, just by itself. Then I thought about the whole journey, well, going from Rurapehu all the way to the summit of Mount Cook, and I thought about the Cook Strait, well, that's just one part of it. That's just one segment of it, and I just have to find a way to get through it. And... uh, I also, I, I use that same kind of technique for um, this going from home to home journey as well. Because uh, many years ago, I'd actually thought about going across the Tasman, what it would be like to have a go at going across the Tasman, but I was a bit, I was a bit, um, you know, sceptical and uh, concerned, and I thought it was actually, I couldn't think of anything more terrifying, to be honest, at the time of being out there in a little rowboat with massive waves. But then when I thought about the entire journey, I was like, well, the Tasman is just actually the smallest leg in a massive, massive journey. So it's just, you know, just have, it's just, just another problem. It's just another challenge to get around. So just have to come up with a solution for it. So I find um, I find by thinking really big like that can help me, give me, it gives me a lot of mental strength to overcome a lot of uncertainties. And my wife as well, I remember when I first met her, she, she loved running. She'd run five kilometres every day. Um, but I said to her, have you ever thought about running a half marathon or a marathon? She was like, well, I couldn't. I definitely couldn't. I only went five kilometers every day. And I said, you definitely could. You know, but it's just that you have it in your mind that you only run five kilometers a day. So if you tell yourself that you have to run 42 kilometers you know, in a few months, then how do you feel about running 10 or 20 kilometers? And you know, she ran the marathon like a year and a half later in a faster time than I did. Um, but it was really, it was really, it was really annoying actually. But uh, but uh, it was just the ability to think really big sometimes. Um, it's something that I that I struggle with. I, mean, I know 
that, that can work the opposite way. I know people who think far too big and their their uh, ambition far exceeds their their, uh, their skill levels, which is which is a dangerous situation to be in. But for me, I, I find sometimes that I can't really push myself to think big. Yeah, that's a that's a very cool way to look at it, actually. Um, and I think it's it's probably not a strategy that many people utilize as well. Um, mm. Because it is, it is scary to think that big sometimes. Yeah. Grant, I've got one more question for you. Um, one more official question. Um, but if people want to uh, kind of find out more about you, if they want to follow along with you with your journey, where can they go? How can they? How can they do that? How can they learn more? Okay, so I have a website. It's called axonaverest.com. So my nickname is X, A-X-E, and my website's xoneverest.com. And I also have a Facebook page, which is uh, currently it's called Growing From Home to Home. Uh, So they can follow on Facebook or follow through the blog. And if anyone has any questions, they can just send me an email. My email is x at xoneverest.com as well. And I'll put some put some links to to all of that in the notes for the show. Uh, but before I last ask the last question, I just want to say thanks um, thanks again for taking the time to to sit down and have a chat with me uh, this afternoon. Um, thank you for giving me another opportunity to to record this. But also thank you for um, being an example of of thinking big and going out and adventuring. Um, under human power, it's. Uh, I think it, it helps me to think a lot bigger about challenges that I'm taking on, um, with with the stuff that you're doing, and I kind of think, oh, I ran a I ran a ultra marathon uh, a couple of months ago, and I uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. But the, I mean, I think the first time we talked was kind of just before. I'd done that and I thought, okay, Axe is out doing all of these amazing adventures that are taking him multiple, multiple days. I can spend uh, the better part of a day going out for a run. Um, So, yeah, thank you for uh, helping me out with that. That's a great example. I love that example. That's a, that definitely is probably what I was trying to explain as well. So I'm really happy that you understand it too. I use that technique too. And I think of other people, uh, what other people have done. And if they can do that, then I can do this. Cool. Grant, um, before we wrap up, do you have any challenges to leave me and the listeners with this week? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> yes, I do have a challenge. I would like to invite anybody listening to this to have a little human-powered adventure in, within this week or the next week. And that can be as, as simple as um, instead of driving your car to work, uh, walk to work, run to work, ride your bike to work, skateboard to work, use an elliptical to go to work, or walk on your hands, or do anything, or kayak to work if there's a river there. But just get out there and have a go um, at getting there completely by human power. 
it makes some of you, at the very least, it will make you think about getting to work in a different way. And then at, at the very worst, um, there's nothing there's nothing bad that can happen. And the very best, you, you have a fantastic little adventure. You'll um, you burn off uh, burn off a little bit of uh, of those calories that you uh, eat when you sit in the office all day, and um, you'll probably be inspired and inspire other people just by what you're doing. So yeah. Awesome. I think that's a, that's a great challenge. And for those of you that are listening to this, uh, let us know how you get on. We'd be uh, very interested to, to hear. Sure. But cool. Grant, me too. Yeah. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Well, it wasn't very uncomfortable. It was actually a very pleasant sensation. So thanks for having me on your show. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's a pleasure, mate. There you have it guys, thank you so much for making it all the way to the end of that conversation. Um, I realised that the audio quality wasn't great there, but hopefully you agree it was worthwhile putting it out uh, just to, to hear Grant's stories and, and his insights. You probably would have missed a couple of words along the way there, um, so make sure that you do head over to www.patreon.com slash uncomfortable is okay because I put my notes up there uh, from this conversation uh, and made them public so that you can you can download those ones and, and take that away from this conversation. Um, as I said earlier, uh, looking to looking to grow the uncomfortable is okay community and concept. So I'd really love um, to hear what you guys would find valuable. Because I think um, you guys are an integral part of this community, so it would be awesome to kind of help uh, help shape it collectively. I want to leave you today with a quote from Grant in the episode um, that really I really really enjoyed, and I've been pondering since I talked to him. It is: if you have a massive failure in life and you have a chance to go back and have another go, then you're in a really incredible position. So hopefully you guys have a little bit of a think about that over the course of the week, maybe while you're out on your human-powered adventure. Um, Let me know if you've been in a situation like that before. And also let me know how your human-powered adventure goes. We'll be back next week. The audio quality is better next week uh, for next week's guest. But thank you again for getting uncomfortable with Grant and I today. Mm-hmm.